strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here this morning. The border has been a big topic in Arizona for decades, and now over the last couple of years, we have seen a huge increase of border crossings and encounters with people crossing our border. And so to have a different conversation about the different angles on all of this, joining us right now is Pedro De Velasco. He's the Director of Education and Advocacy for an organization called Kino Border Initiative. Uh, Pedro, welcome to the show. Uh, hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to have a conversation with you. You were talking about changing the perception of migrants um, that are crossing our border. Can you explain what the organization is trying to do in that regard? Well, yes. Uh, basically, we are a humanitarian organization, a Catholic binational organization located in Ambos, Nogales, right at the border between Nogales, Sonora and Nogales, Arizona. And our, our mission is to promote humane, just, and workable migration. And we do this through, yes, direct humanitarian assistance, holistic accompaniment, but also, uh, you know, facilitating these encounters between migrants and the community to awaken solidarity. And uh, we also engage in policy advocacy, both in Mexico and the United States. So from your perspective, what policy changes, if any, does this administration need to put in to either slow down the flow of people or to get some more of what you call humanitarian treatment? I mean, the problem right now basically is that uh, access to asylum is shut down at the border. So a lot of people uh, think that, you know, the, the, the increase in encounters by Border Patrol are because of these uh, fluxes of, of people coming to the border. But the reality is that the families that are arriving to border towns in Mexico, they want to cross, they want to be able to present themselves at ports of entry to request uh, access to asylum. But the reality is that the current policy called Title 42 prevents that from happening. So families want to go to the port of entry, request to be admitted so that they can come to the United States and begin the asylum process. Title 42 is preventing this from happening and people are left uh, stranded in Nogales because they cannot go back to their communities or home countries because of the violence and persecution they're fleeing from and they cannot move forward because of this policy. So that uh, exploited that, you know, something that the organized crime is taking advantage of encouraging people into crossing through remote areas. So actually Title 42 is causing this increase in the numbers that people have been talking about. And the reality is that uh, Title 42, it also means that people found in these remote areas are going to be immediately expelled with total disregard of their safety and of this uh, violence and persecution that they're fleeing from, this protection that they're requesting. So uh, that's the situation right now. So when we talk about policy change, we talk about restoring access to asylum, making sure that people are able to request asylum at the border and that they can begin the process. So we're not advocating for an open border policy. We're just advocating for humane policies at the border. Well, what are the issues that's happening with the asylum claims as well over 50 percent of the claims that come in once they're adjudicated are deemed to be false claims for asylum? So it seems like the legitimate asylum seekers are waiting in very long lines with people that don't have legitimate claims for asylum. How do we fix that problem? I mean, the reality is that it, it is a human right to be heard. So you cannot uh, throw to the garbage all the claims, just considering that about half of those are, uh, are you know, not have the merits for asylum. Uh, 
the reality is that 75% of the people that we are encountering at uh, Nogales right now, they're fleeing violence and persecution. They're trying to get to safety for themselves, for their children. And it's upon arrival that they're finding out about the existence of Title 42 and that it is virtually impossible to present at the port of entry and to come in. So a lot of times you, we, we've been asked this question about, like, why don't they come legally? Well, basically, it's because they can't, because we lack of options for people to immigrate to the United States. And I have to say, asylum is a legal way to immigrate. So let's talk about the other thing that's happening at the border. The president has proposed a change in policy that says once you get to the first safe country from the country you're fleeing, which in many cases would be Mexico, that you have to apply for that asylum in that safe country. Do you oppose that policy as well? Well, actually, that's not completely accurate. So that's not what they're saying, because basically what the U.S. negotiated with Mexico is that Mexico's government uh, was willing to receive other nationalities that uh, in the past the U.S. wasn't able to immediately expel under Title 42. So the U.S. was forced to begin the process for asylum for these uh, nationalities not because they want it or because, you know, of uh, following the international law, but basically because they weren't able to expeditely remove them back to their countries. And uh, so that's why they negotiated with the Mexican government being able to expel other nationalities, you know, before they already had negotiated for Guatemalan nationals, Salvadorian nationals, and Honduran nationals. And uh, this recent announcement that you're referring to is more about expanding Title 42 to Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and since October, but they're just affirming Venezuelan nationals as well. And you can see that, you know, these are countries where there's, there are huge humanitarian crisis, political crisis, climate crisis, and, you know, people are fleeing from these situations and finding shut doors because right now, if any of these nationalities approach the port of entry, they will be uh, denied admission, or if they try to get in the remote areas, they will be immediately expelled back to Mexico. So that's the situation. And again, 80% of the people that we are encountering, at uh, at least in Nogales, they're internally displaced from the violence in Mexico. So Mexico is not a safe country. So when we talk about like safe country, uh, it should be a place that can guarantee the safety and well-being of of, of asylum seekers and that's not the situation of mexico mexico cannot even guarantee the safety of their own nationals and now we're sending other nationalities and forcing them to wait in this country uh and you know for what for nothing because they're not trying to open pathways for them to come to the united states to begin the asylum process but if the american government doesn't have the resources and it seems like it doesn't have the people to adjudicate the cases the people to work the cases they certainly don't have the number of people working on the border with cbp or ice to process people right now the border is overwhelmed would you agree that it's overwhelmed and if we were to do what you're saying with title 42 most experts are saying that it would completely destroy even the the very liberal governor of california said that the the, the limitations or the uh, the end of Title 42 would do very serious damage to California. How do you account for that? I mean, to, 
let, let's remember something. So when the pandemic started, uh, you know, and, and they shut down the border, not only for asylum seekers or humanitarian reasons, but they shut it down for everybody, like uh, tourism and commerce. So people with valid visas weren't able to come to the United States. And that lasted until November 8th of 2021, where they announced that they're going to resume or, or, or facilitate again access to non-essential travelers, so tourism, commerce, and everything. Back then, if you have gotten to the border on November 8th, you will see these very long lines of, of people trying to come to the United States. Why? Because for a little over a year and a half, they weren't able to do so. So yes, when you restore access to asylum, you might have you know long lines of people trying to come but it's not because of like, you know, it's you're causing the bottleneck. You're causing these uh, people stranded at, at the border between Mexico and the United States. And eventually you will need to restore it because it's under international and domestic law. You know, it's, it's a right. People have the right to seek asylum. So as long as you keep it open, it will normalize as it did with uh, tourism. If you come down to the border right now, you'll see normal lines of people, of vehicles coming to the United States orderly. So mm, the, the problem here is that the government, the, the federal government has, ha, has had over two and a half years to prepare for how restoring access to asylum in an orderly, humane and just matter uh, would look like. But they didn't prepare anything. And don't get me wrong, this um, step about CBP-1 and the government taking responsibility on, on uh, making the appointments for people to present for uh, requesting an exception to Title 42 and, and be admitted is a step in the right direction. But we still have concerns about, uh, you know, equality in access to this platform and, you know, tech issues and people that are literate and, and that they're not English or Spanish speakers. But, you know, at, at least there are actions taken to the right uh, to the right direction. Well, Mr. De Lavasco, I, Velasco, I, I appreciate the time today. I hope you'll come back and talk about this. This is going to be an ongoing conversation and I appreciate the perspective. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. I, I, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions with uh, immigration, and also like these hundreds of thousands of people that they are saying, that's not a reality. I'm right in Nogales uh, right now, and there are not even 100 people uh, here today with us. Well, thank you again, sir. That is uh, Pedro de la Velasco. He is with the uh, uh, Kino Border Initiative. Coming up in a moment, uh, good news about valley inflation. It seems like it's dropping. We'll talk about that coming up here in just a moment. values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, coming up, bottom of the hour, Phoenix Police Chief, or Assistant Police Chief Brian Chapman is going to join us in studio to talk about things at Phoenix Police Department, and so that's coming up in just a few moments. For the last few minutes we have left in this segment, let's talk about a couple of things. Good news for inflation. The Phoenix area no longer number one in the country in inflation, although it remains high, it is waning. We are seeing uh, the housing market has cooled off, which 
The nice thing about what's happening in Phoenix is we are not seeing the same kind of downturn there are around the country. We still have a housing shortage, but we also have demand. There are still a lot of people moving to the valley. It is still a destination. The state of Arizona and the desert southwest as a whole, still a destination for people, which is good. But seeing a cooling in the housing market is allowing some people to jump in that weren't able to before. Um, We are seeing interest rates moderate a little bit and settle. But with the other thing that's coming is with high inflation nationwide, still about 6.5% annually, it looks like the Fed is talking about raising rates on February 1st, which eventually will affect the mortgage market as well. Um, It's interesting the different things that affect how how prices are affected. We know the eggs are really expensive. We had uh, the President Glenn Hickman on from Hickman Family Farms talking about the bird flu across the country and increased demand during the holidays along with supply dips because of that infestation or infectation, I should say. Um, so that is uh, that's a number of reasons as well. Um, there are a couple of things the legislature is doing here in Arizona, which I, I think are decent ideas. They're moving to slash corporate income taxes here in the state. Now, according to the story in AZ Central or at the Arizona Republic, it could cost $1.7 in funding to cities. But the figure includes a potential $320 million cut in funding for Arizona cities and towns over the same period. We'll see how that money is going to be made back. But the idea of making things easier for businesses, big and small, is not a bad idea to me. There is also a push right now to end the right to work. Um, state or laws in the state of Arizona. I think one of the reasons why our economy is flourishing and wages remain very high. I think that when you talk about the professions and when you think about unions, um, I think about the trades. I came as I was an electrician. I've never, I've only worked in right to work states. I've never worked in any other state. I've worked in Florida and I've worked here in Arizona and I had a good career in both of them. I made good wages. Um, I was able to negotiate my wages based on my work ethic and based on my um, ability Abilities. And so I never had a complaint. I liked working in a right-to-work state. I didn't want a structure of a union. But I will tell you, union membership, and I will say union training, is second to none. If you, from my trade experience, if you hire a union journeyman electrician, you can rest assured if they have a journeyman's card and they are union trained, there is no doubt that they've had the best training that's out there, that they are going to be well-rounded in every aspect of the trade. They are not going to be someone that's done the same thing. Thing over and over again multiple times. So there's good and bad in everything. But the ability to be a right-to-work state, I think, is what has made the expansion here in Arizona so big, what has made our growth and diversification of our economy so good. And I'm hoping that that stays in place. I think it's something that's absolutely necessary to our future growth. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that that has played a very, very big role. Coming up in just a couple of moments, Assistant Police Chief in the City of Phoenix, Brian Chapman, joins us. And we are going to talk about the the latest updates or possible updates that are coming to their use of force policy and public input. We'll talk crime. We'll talk about retention and recruitment of new officers and just get an update about Phoenix PD. That's coming up here in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. 
Hey, thanks for being here. Joining me in studio, Assistant Police Chief in the City of Phoenix, Brian Chapman. Chief, welcome in. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Um, uh, let's start off with use of force. There was a story that came out. You guys had a press release that you're looking for public input, input at possible changes that you've released, kind of an outline of your use of force changes in Phoenix. Before we get into the public input part, can you explain some of the changes that are in there as potential changes to use of force policy? Yeah. Uh, first of all, Chief Sullivan's been here for about four months. He's made an um, organizational priority on what he is here to focus on. One of those areas is our use of force policy, uh, a, a revision to that. And so what you see as a draft policy today is a combination of a couple months of work of getting this policy to the point where it is in draft form and that we're looking for public input and input from our employees as well because this impacts everybody. And uh, that's uh, what we're hoping to engage on. And it's not going to be a, a policy of perfect. And we understand that there's going to be some movement from what it looks like today to what it's going to finalize. But uh, we hope to ha- have some uh, input from all all factors of our community. And you've been you've been a cop for, what, 23 years, 24 years? Yeah. Um, and it's changed. I'm sure the policy's changed because technology has changed. You know, you have so many more options of less lethal and things of that nature. So the policy's naturally changing that way. But why? What are some of the changes here and what kind of motivated some of the changes potentially? Well, uh, I, you know, the elephant in the room is the Department of Justice investigation. And uh, the Department of Justice has been here for um, almost a year and a half now. And um, part of that process has been an evaluation of every facet of our organization. And when we look at the policy that you see here now, one thing is different is it's more concise than previous versions. It's uh, plain language, easy to read, and easy to understand. Uh, And what you see is a draft policy that has some core principles and some some guiding values and an expectation of where our levels of force will be. For example, in this policy, there are three levels of force that talk about what they are, how they're reported, and that's good accountability for within the organization for our people and it's transparency for the community as well. So they know what to expect if something happens and it falls in those areas. But it's also got to be better for the officers if it's spelled out in plain English and very concise that they know where the standards are so they also know where the limits are, correct? Yes, that, and, and that's the point and that's why uh, if we could put our use of force policy on a 3 by 5 card and have everybody carrying with them, that would be ideal, but for reasons of technology and the way things have changed, um, you know, there's some complexity to a, a number of uh, things that we do, and uh, we want to try be a, as as concise as possible. And uh, w- this is this is as I said the kind of overarching policy. At the end of February, you're going to see three addendums to this. One that has to do with our operations, specifically like our use of less lethal when we use that and and how we employ it, reporting and review, and duty to intervene and and duty to intervene is a policy we currently have in place, but if, if we have officers um, who are, are unfortunately using excessive force, we have an expectation that people in our organization are going to step in and intervene in that, and they have a duty to do so to, because it's a violation of policy, it's a violation of law, and it, it's just not the practice that we want. And you know, human nature, there are times when you get a little heated up over something and have a partner step in and make sure you don't cross a line is just part of being a good cop too, isn't it? it 
it absolutely is. It, it's it's our internal accountability mechanism, and, and uh, it, I don't think you know when you see things play out on on uh, TV or in the media, it's not that uh, they're going fisticuffs and people are, are are thrown down, but just to have that kind of intervention when you're emotionally charged and engaged in the situation, to have somebody come in with some objectivity is really crucial to having a successful conclusion. What are you hoping to gain from public input? A way to connect with people that we previously haven't done. We've never put out a policy like this for community input and, and review. And I think this is uh, an expectation that Chief Sullivan has of finding non-traditional ways of community engagement. And and when we look at some of our uh, people who are uh, detractors, people that have been uh, proponents of defund the police movement uh, and talking about wanting police organizations to reform, this is their opportunity to have a voice in that and, and be very objective about what we're doing and, and provide that input. And some of that, as we said, it's a draft policy. Some of our language is going to change. And we, we hope to have that kind of uh, conversation with people. Coming from a law enforcement family, I've, I've talked about I wish there was some level of education for the public because I don't think the public understands the ongoing training that goes on for some of these situations, the de-escalation part of it, that when you're involved in an emotional charged situation that can become physical that you have to react to the force that's in front of you at the moment and when it gets de-escalated by a suspect you've got to reduce that emotion and that's something that's learned that's not often something that you're born with but that's a trained reaction and you retrain in that often don't you all the time there's a reason our training academy is six months and uh, you'll never be able to train every situation in in a static learning uh, environment like the academy but then you go out to field training where you acclimate for another three months or so and then you, you get out on the street and and these areas that we talk about with understanding our use of force policy the changes that come with law and the expectations that come from the community we have to stay on top of that we have to be able to be change conducive and that's why you're going to see this sort of change as we go forward i think that in any relationship if there's going to be a good relationship between the community and the pd there's got to be mutual understanding is there some things that in in general, you wish the community understood better about policing that might make them understand some of the things that happen on the streets with cops? We are all human beings. And we all have emotions and we all think of uh, our, our own individual perspective. This is a profession. Uh, the men and women of the Phoenix Police Department are challenged every single day with going into volatile situations where emotions are at an all-time high. And we have to be the... Uh, the, the we have to be the mechanism that comes in and brings calms to it. But we also appreciate the perspective of people being involved in those situations. And sometimes, uh, the vast majority of the time, overwhelmingly, we do the absolute right thing. Uh, there are some times that we make mistakes. And I think when you see an officer make a mistake, you tend to brand the entire organization by the actions of that single encounter. And I don't think that's necessarily a fair perspective uh, from the community sometimes is that that one action is is indicative of an entire organization because we we will make mistakes. We don't want to, but importantly, we learn from them and we move on. But I also think that it's sometimes an action in a moment, like you said, a mistake is also not indicative of a person as a whole. 
or a cop's full career. There are a lot of these situations that can't be overcome, and it's got to end as far as the police work. But in some cases, there are things that can be done that can uh, reinstate in, in the trust in that officer, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when uh, when we have those type of encounters and things don't go the way, there's a review process that goes on. There's a retraining, and there's an organizational review of some of these really high liability or high areas that, that bring a lot of attention because we don't want that to happen again. And we'll do everything we can to make sure that that officer is very clear about the expectations and then our department doesn't repeat that mistake through whether it's a policy or a training enhancement. All right. Uh, the chief is going to be with us for just a few more minutes. We've got another segment. We're going to talk recruitment and retention, crime rates, drugs, and we're going to talk about a few other things. So we'll be back here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. We are uh, sitting with Assistant Police Chief in the City of Phoenix, Brian Chapman. Let's talk about recruiting and retention of officers. Um, let's start with retention. Um, I know that that's been a concern for a while, that there are a lot of other Valley cities that are growing rapidly, and the experience in the Phoenix Police Department is very attractive to some of those cities. How is retention of existing officers going? Uh, it's it's going better this year than it did last year. I mean, we have uh, our attrition over the last five years has always been north of 200 people a year. Uh, it's never gotten to the point uh, of 300. We've put in some retention bonus. We have a market adjustment for pay, which makes us the highest paid agency in the state. Those things are important in terms of monetary, but people don't come solely because of money. They come for opportunity. They come for a variety of reasons. And we want to have a place where people value being here, that they know they're valued, they're appreciated. And we want to provide them the resources from the cars they drive to the computers they use to the stations that they have and the training we put on. We want that and the expectation is it for to, to be top shelf. And uh, it's always a challenge. What are some of the things you're doing with recruiting to attract new candidates? Uh, well, we, uh, we've we onboarded a program with the Department of Defense called SkillBridge. And SkillBridge allows people who are transitioning out of the uh, uh, armed forces uh, for up to six months, they can be hired by like the city of Phoenix. And the Department of Defense will pay for their training during the academy and their wages. So when you look at the opportunity for that, just from a dollars and cents standpoint, Point, that saves the city about forty-two to forty-five thousand dollars in training and, and costs for that, and it provides people coming out of the military an opportunity to transition into a skill set and a career that they currently want to have. In addition to that, we have uh, changed our, our hiring process um, and have gone away from a traditional written test, which you have you uh, most other agencies do. And our experience for that is that uh, that written test is is not very um, predictive of how they're going to do in the academy and has a lot less to do with police work than someone's heart and their their uh, gift of service. And so we want to evaluate that in very different ways. And uh, being able to transition from that written test to a very um, specific um, uh, 
I guess it's an easy post qualifications and disqualification format. So we can onboard those people into our hiring process who don't have previous felony convictions or hard drug use in the last seven years. And we're being able to expand our candidate pool. Just in December, as an example, we brought in over 350 people into our Employment Services Bureau. And our opportunity to screen them and get them through the hiring process is important. We hire about 10% of the people that apply in the organization. So, you know, of the 350, we're, we're going to get 30 people, 40 people out of that. And though we're comfortable with that, that kind of percentage. So you also have a push now on a program and, and reaching out for female candidates. Yeah. Um, Chief Sullivan and uh, the mayor and Councilwoman O'Brien uh, signed on to the initiative of 30 for 30, which is having 30% of our academy uh, workforce being female by the year 2030. And uh, there's some programs and initiatives. That's a, a nationwide initiative. I think over 250 other agencies have signed on and not without controversy because people say, well, why are you just focusing on, on females? And w- we want a diverse viewpoint when we come into this organization from every walk of life. And it's just a, a commitment to that um, specific group that they can have roles here. We have a lot of opportunities here in the organization for upward mobility and investigative capacity. And we just want to make sure that everybody sees that their path doesn't have to be a traditional way. It can be a different way. You know, my sister-in-law is a deputy in my hometown, and uh, it isn't so much that they don't that she didn't believe she could do the job, but there was a perception at times that she wasn't necessarily wanted in the job. So to reach out and say, yes, you are, if you've got the skill set, we definitely want you. I think that's an important message, don't you? I, yeah, I do. And I, I think that what we hear a lot is, well, nobody, nobody asked me. And we have this perception that people are just going to want to automatically join the department. We have to meet the community where they are. And we have to do that whether it's the military, whether it's at uh, academic institutions or, or where it is. And it's a hard job, Mike. You know. Yeah. I mean, we had 11 officers shot last year. And uh, every one of those officers have partners and they work on squads. And the very next day after they were shot, those officers came to work. Um, their partners came to work while, while their officers were rehabbing and, and trying to get better. And that on-off switch of just being able to kind of power down your your emotions about what happened to uh, your partner and then come back to work is incredible and, and it's uh, hats off to the men and women of this organization who have done it repeatedly they they put out the best effort they're the highest paid and that's for a reason because of the challenges that they see 24 hours a day seven days a week let's talk about the the uh, detail that was going on for quite a while in which you were focused on guns illegal guns and illegal gun sales how did that work out and can you give us some details about it? Yeah, uh, we started in uh, June uh, really focusing on gun crime um, as a result of a couple of uh, parties where we had multiple people shot. And we had a partnership with Maricopa County Attorney's Office, the Arizona um, U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, ATF, and our, our own internal working group. And we focused on gun crime. Um, from June until the end of November when that program concluded, uh, we took off over 1,600 guns in the city of Phoenix alone during that time frame. And uh, importantly, in the last calendar year, we had over 500 people 
shot in the city of Phoenix where a bullet pierced the skin. Uh, and that wasn't a homicide only because that bullet didn't find its mark. So when you look at the impact that those kinds of shooting had, uh, those shootings have in the overall crime, uh, it's important that we investigate those. And so what you see now onboarding is two additional squads that are going to just focus completely on those type of gun crimes so we can start rooting those out on the front end so those shootings don't become multiple shootings and then those shootings don't become homicides. And when it comes to the dealing of illegal guns, is it a lot like drug dealers where sometimes cops that know who the drug dealers are in certain areas, is it the same with guns where you know who some of the gun dealers are? Yeah, and I would say, and this is no mystery, the the guns and drugs usually come hand in hand. Where you find one, you find the other. And so that's where we find a lot of our, our coordinated efforts is that whether we're focusing on fentanyl or we're looking at drug distribution, then uh, we're also finding that we are recovering um, significant firearms. Well, Chief, I appreciate all the time this morning. I think getting an update uh, periodically does a lot for the people in Phoenix because I think we're all focused on safe streets and we want to make sure our police department is is fully staffed or as much as they can be. So we really appreciate the update and I hope you'll come back once that policy is set in place and we can learn about what's in there. Yeah, and I, can I just say, join phxpd.com. We're aggressively hiring um, applicants and laterals and we appreciate the community support that we see every single day. All right, thanks. That is Assistant Chief Brian Chapman joining us for just a little while, an update on Phoenix Police Department. Uh, we focus on all of the Valley, but I live in Phoenix. It's the biggest city in Arizona, highest paid agency, and it's someone that kind of leads the way. So it was interesting to get the update. We'll keep updating you more as time goes on. Coming up in a few moments, uh, we're going to talk with Steve Hooper, who is a former FBI agent. We're going to talk about school safety. He has a company that focuses on school and business safety when it comes to shootings. We will talk with him about the details and all that coming up here in just a few moments. Stick around.